Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 63 of Caro Pop. We're having our first live Caro Pop event on January 18th, when I'll be interviewing the very funny, sharp actor David Pesquese from Veep, Lodge 49, and the TJ and Dave Improv Show. It's happening at the club Space in Evanston, and general admission seats are a mere $12 a piece. If you're in the Chicago area on January 18th, don't miss it. Our guest for this episode is a guitarist who's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with one band and previously did stellar work in another Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band, Jeff Skunk Baxter. Skunk, as he likes to be called, was an original member of Steely Dan and played lead, rhythm, and pedal steel guitar on the band's indelible first three albums, Can't Buy a Thrill, Countdown to Ecstasy, and Pretzel Logic. Those are his memorable guitar solos on My Old School and Ricky Don't Lose That Number. But then, Steely Dan songwriter leaders Donald Fagan and Walter Becker decided to quit touring and to rely on studio musicians from there on out. That marked the end of Steely Dan as a band band, and Skunk needed a new gig. He found it with another group with whom he'd done some studio work and touring, the Doobie Brothers. He joined the Doobies as a full-time guitarist, starting with a 1975 album, Stampede, which featured the hit, Take Me In Your Arms, Rock Me. When frontman Tom Johnston was experiencing health problems and the Doobies needed another lead singer, Skunk brought in a fellow Steely Dan veteran, keyboardist Michael McDonald. McDonald brought more of a polished soul R&B flavor to the group and also wrote hits such as Taking It to the Streets, the title track of his first album with the band. The transformation became complete with 1978's Minute by Minute, a blockbuster album driven by the smash single What a Fool Believes. The band had never been more successful or less reliant on guitar. Skunk left soon afterward. He played with the band Spirit in the 80s, was briefly in a supergroup called The Best with John Entwistle, Joe Walsh, and Keith Emerson, and he did a lot more work with various performers in the studio and on stage. This summer, after all these years, he released his first solo album, Speed of Heat. It includes his rocked-up version of My Old School and the jazzy instrumental version of Steely Dan's Do It Again. The guest vocalists include Michael McDonald, Clint Black, and Johnny Lang. The album has him out on the road with a band that includes his close collaborator, C.J. Vanston. In our conversation, he talks about his work on those early Steely Dan albums, how he composed his solos, and how much control Becker and Fagan tried to impose on the music from album to album. He also says which Steely Dan song he feels is most representative of that period. Hint, it's from Countdown to Ecstasy, which has the loosest vibe of those three albums. Was Skunk upset when Becker and Fagan took Steely Dan off the road and ended that version of the band? Did he expect to become a full-time member of another prominent band so quickly? How did he feel as the Doobie Brothers moved from being a heavy-duty guitar band to one driven by Michael McDonald's keyboards? Why did he leave that band? Is he still in touch with Donald Fagan? Has Fagan heard his new versions of Do It Again in My Old School? What does he think of Fagan touring a Steely Dan without the late Walter Becker? How does Skunk enjoy performing as a solo act at long last? Will I get him to explain the origin of his nickname? He also talks about his day job, doing military consulting and gaming out war scenarios for the U.S. government. If we knew what he knows, would we feel better or worse? Yes, we're reeling in the ears with Skunk Baxter. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation.
Well, thanks for coming on, Carol Pop. I really appreciate it. I've, I've been listening to your work for a really long time, and, and it's, a, it's a real honor to get to chat with you. What is the band like for this, uh, this tour you're doing, by the way? How many people are you going to have on stage for these shows? Uh, it's four altogether, including myself. Uh, keyboard player is uh, C.J. Vanston, who is uh, I partnered with on this solo project. Been a brilliant musician in his own right. The drummer, a gentleman named Mark Damien, is an amazing studio guy as well as a live player, but these guys are all just killer studio guys. And then the bass player singer is a gentleman named Hank Horton, who is from uh, Lansing, Michigan. And all these guys know each other actually. And he is a fearsome bass player and an amazing singer to take on the responsibilities of something like reproducing what we did with Michael McDonald and, and Clint Black and, and Johnny Lang. He just does an amazing job. He's also a bass player for the Detroit Symphony. So he's got some oh, serious wow. jobs. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty powerful band. What's the difference between being a killer studio player and someone who's killer live? Well, there are a lot of wonderful live musicians that freeze when the red light goes on. It's a different world. Uh, not that you can't uh, straddle both worlds. There are a number of us who do that, but it is a different attitude. It's almost like the difference between uh, being an EMT, ER trauma person, and a brain surgeon. You know, mm. there's just there's just different approaches to the same thing with different kinds of responsibility. I guess. Which one do you enjoy most and which do you think brings out your best? Well, that's an interesting question. It's hard to say, uh, you know, which of my great kids do I love the most? It's, it's, uh, I love playing live. It's always been one of my favorite things. But being a studio musician also, to me, requires a certain amount of expertise, discipline, knowledge. And it's a kind of a rarefied atmosphere. And almost like being top gun, you know, if you're first call. And I think it requires a certain amount of discipline, which I think is good. I like that. I like the, the idea that when you go in to work, that you're there because people think you're the best at what you do. When you were in Steely Dan, you were that you were on the three albums that they actually were also a live band and weren't just a studio band. So you were able to bring both of those skills to the table with Steely Dan, which is sort of ironic because then later, at least in their first incarnation, they became solely a studio band, even though you excelled at that work as well. That didn't change sort of my vision and change where I wanted to go and what and what I was doing in terms of it being a studio musician for other artists. Sure. Um, and when Steely Dan decided to not tour, um, I was actually sitting in a room with a bunch of guys from the Doobie Brothers because I was on the tour with them at Nebworth in, uh, England doing a music festival. When I hung up the phone, I said, well, that's kind of it for me and the Steely Dan. And they said, well, now you're in the Doobie Brothers. So the live thing took care of itself, I guess. Right. And you'd recorded with the Doobie Brothers too. So you were able to do both with them. Right. The, uh, the Doobie Brothers had hired me again as a studio. I'd come in and do some pedal steel and do some other things for them uh, before I'd actually become a member of the band. So. 
So I thought it was interesting. Your new album, Speed of Heat, uh, is your first solo album, even though you've had obviously a very long uh, storied career. You have versions of two Steely Dan songs that I think are interesting in that you have a very sort of jazzy instrumental version of Do It Again and this really kind of rock hard, you know, pile driving version of My Old School. And, and in a way, you're kind of capturing the two sides of that steely dan coin the sort of jazzy side and then the rock side were you consciously thinking that when you did that as far as do it again is concerned i would say it was just a fun uh foray into seeing what would what would happen if you took a a really cool steely dan song like do it again uh turned it inside out and upside down turned it into a shuffle and had some fun with it so I think it was more looking at what was best for the song than were we going to do a, you know, a, a, a much jazzier or a much swinging version of it. My old school definitely was uh, vectored in that direction. I used to sing the song live when I was in Stilly Dan. And the more we played it, the more energy it accrued as we went on the road. And I always thought this song could certainly support a much more focused, hard driving, as you say, rock feel. And so when I wrote this arrangement, I felt really comfortable it would support it. And I'd actually asked Steve Tyler to sing it. I sent it to him and he said, well, who's singing it? I said, well, that's just, that's me. I'm, I'm just doing it as a scratch vocal. So yeah, well, you know, can figure out where this where we are in this thing well why don't you sing it uh because i'm not a singer <laughs> and he went well you should sing this i said come on steve and he said i'm telling you so I said, all right i i trust you you're a friend you got you know you know more about this than i do so i kind of took a shot at it and i guess the experiences and the the amount of time doing it i had under my belt kind of helped me uh, with the performance. Right. Did you re-record it at that point or did you use the vocal you sent to Steven Tyler? I re-recorded. I thought, okay, going to settle down here and see what I can do. I was pretty young when uh, Do It Again and Reeling in the Years came out, but I knew those songs from AM radio growing up. And then I heard my old school like later on FM radio and then getting Countdown to Ecstasy. And I was like, well, why wasn't this song a huge hit? This song is catchy as hell. Did you guys think that my old school was like, you know, the next big hit. And did you even think about stuff like that? I don't think we've thought much about that because for one thing, we were amazed that anybody cared what we did. There was a period of time where when you are in a, a band with no name and your, your best demo was a song called Dr. Udu's Proto Man. Uh, we didn't, we found a less than enthusiastic response from most of the the record business. Yeah, well, of course, in the way everything is, and once you have a success with it, everybody wants a Steely Dan band. But we didn't really think much about what was a hit, what wasn't, what we were doing for radio. We were as surprised as anybody else that Do It Again was getting the kind of airplay that it did. That certainly wouldn't have been my first pick. But you never know. We just didn't say, okay, well, we're going to do this with AM radio on mine, and we're going to do this with FM radio on mine. We weren't even sure what Steely Dan was yet. Record Story Day earlier this year released an album 
uh, Long on the Shelf by Linda Hoover, which uh, the first side of it is, you know, songs written by Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. And you're on it. Denny Diaz is on it. Gary Katz produced it. Was this the first sort of Steely Dan project? And do you guys know you were Steely Dan when you made that record? No. No, we didn't. Uh, what we did know was when I went down, I, I was I was living in Boston and I was commuting back and forth to New York to do session work. And when I went into the studio, because Gary had said, there's this group of uh, songwriters that, that I'd like you to come and, and work with. And we're doing this project with a uh, lady named Linda Hoover. So when I went down there, we, we were about halfway through the record and Donald said, Hey, you know, I've never really heard anybody that plays guitar like you and on our material. And I said, well, I've never really ever heard material like this. This is mm. really cool. So we, we said, okay, whoever passes go first sort of gets in touch with the rest of the folks. And maybe there's a way we should get together and form some kind of a musical, you know, musical organization. So when Donald and Walter came out to Los Angeles to pursue a publishing deal with ABC Dunhill records. That's when they said, okay, sort of the, the flare went up, you know, the, the bat beacon went up and uh, we all said, okay, let's, let's think about forming a band. We were trying to figure out what to call it. We were going to, it was a tough call. It was either be, between big Nardo in the eighth grade or Steely Dan, and we figured that Big Nardo in the eighth grade was too long to fit on an album cover. Yeah, so it's we'll a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, and if people have read William Burroughs, it has kind of a fun meaning, too. <laughs> yeah. I, I think a lot of people don't realize that Steely Dan had a single before Can't Buy a Thrill, which was a song, Dallas, that uh, yeah. the drummer Jim Hodder sang, and then then came the album. But it seems like Donald Fagan was sort of insecure about being the lead singer in that he had David Palmer singing stuff and live he was doing even, you know, David Palmer was singing even more of it. Did sort of Donald Fagan's kind of attitude toward himself as a performer change over those three albums in the years you were together with them? Well, certainly, uh, as he as the material that he uh, performed the vocals on uh, became successful. Um, I guess I can understand that now that people have sort of accepted my my vocals on this version of uh, my old school. I'm spending a, a lot more time trying to develop that side of my uh, my musical personality, you know. And I've got a lot more confidence than I did before. Right. Well, and so, and so much of music too. And like when you're writing the lyrics, hearing, hearing the guy sing the lyrics with that spin that he's intending them for, it just, it's hard to imagine anyone, but Donald Fagan, you know, singing those original Steely Dan songs a lot of the time, because it's just, it's just, it's him and his voice and his words and, you know, and their chord changes and everything, it all fits together. Well, it didn't seem to bother Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan or, you know, they, right. I can't, I can't say that they were, uh, they were the Pavarotti's of, of American music. A style is, is like anything else. People, if they like something, they then begin to like the way it's performed. And they, they look past whatever prejudices they may have, and they look into the, into the material. 
when you guys started, how much leeway did you have in doing what you wanted to do with your solos or, you know, slide guitar playing or your know, pedal steel or, you know, rhythm or any of that? Like, was it, was it a band sort of figuring out the arrangements or were, you know, Fagan and Becker already kind of like, this is what I want everyone to play. Well, as, as songwriters, they certainly had some vision of what they wanted, but there was really no way that Donald or Walter could tell me what they wanted on pedal steel because they just didn't understand the instrument. Right. So it was okay. Say, let I'd like to try pedal steel on this. I think it's a work real well. And it was the fact that we were a band and there were very talented musicians in that band who had a strong musical background and history and were able to bring good musical knowledge and application to the, to the project for the first three records. A lot of it was coming from the band. And those albums sound like they're played by a band. Can't buy a thrill countdown ecstasy, pretzel logic, three fantastic records. Um, was there much of an evolution in how they approached the band work? I know there was a little more session work on pretzel logic, but was there a distinct change or did it all feel of a piece? Well, I think that because of the success of Steely Dan, I think Becker and Fagan felt that they now were on a pathway where they could exert more creative control and input into their songwriting, into the, the performance of their song, which is kind of a natural progression. It makes sense to me. And being a studio guy, I had no problem with a lot of my colleagues coming in and playing. I thought that was kind of cool. Just didn't really think about it much. Because I was doing so many other sessions, it was almost like, this is another this is another project, you know? Right. So, so my old school, you have fantastic guitar solo on that. Is that still, you know, you just having the space to do what you want and express the way you wanted to express it? Yeah. They wanted a guitar solo or a number of guitar solos. That's pretty much it. Tell me about your, your approach to soloing in general. I'd read that, uh, that you were really, uh, influenced by, uh, the jazz guitarist, uh, Howard Roberts and placed an emphasis on melody as opposed to, you know, virtuosity. When you have a solo, how do you look at how you want to perform that? Well, I certainly am a melody guy. Uh, the ventures were a major influence as well. And their whole thing, if you want to call it, that was melody. They would take songs, except for Walk, Don't Run, although they played the original melody for Johnny Smith, which was the original version of Walk, Don't Run, without changing it very much. And they were all about melody. Howard Roberts was about, I guess, and I, I did something at the Grammy Museum last night that was talking about Howard. His music, everything that he did, the, the, the beginning of what he did was opening a door and welcoming you as opposed to hitting you in the face like a Charlie Parker or a John Coltrane or Dizzy Gillespie with a barrage of incredible notes. Now, that's not to say that the formula for bebop is a theme, a melody, and then improvising over that set of chord changes and, and that melody. But to me, melody is something that's really important because Human beings are naturally 
drawn to pattern association and they form patterns and they look for patterns and a good melody is a way to at least start off a um any kind of a musical statement and for me a solo is really a mini composition it, it should have a beginning a middle and an end it should start somewhere and should end somewhere um it's it's you know a composition within a composition so for the most part i look at soloing as you know an, an on the fly composition now there are times when it's just you know go for it but for the most part no i definitely say it's i i think melody is important and when you say you know as opposed to virtuosity the more vocabulary that you have as a good as a any instrumentalist it's like the difference between you know jack and jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water okay well that's fairly simplistic that's kind of like a, a basic pentatonic scale you know playing the blues or you could say jack a young man who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and really didn't have a tremendous amount of opportunity in his life was going up this hill to fetch a pail of water because his family didn't have plumbing and he was he found it necessary as part of his duties to the family you know and so on and so on where you take vocabulary and you begin to flush out and make the story more interesting and more in-depth and a little more sophisticated so you're your ability as a, as a virtuoso musician to be able to use your vocabulary to do that, I, I think the, the two are inseparable. Right. Yeah, I'd read that you, you studied classical piano when you were like five. Is that something that influenced, yeah. you know, your guitar learning as well? Like, does it, having being proficient on multiple instruments sort of add to everything? Well, the piano is certainly the centerpiece of Western music uh, in terms of, it's sort of the, the supernova, the mind from which one extracts all kinds of different elements and, and material. So to me, the piano is a huge part of everything I do. And a lot of the melodies that I learned as a studying classical piano, I've actually used. I remember when I was in the Doobie Brothers, we had a kind of a running, a running fun uh, where I was wearing headphones on stage simply because to me, 50,000 people or three people, I want to get a good mix, sit down, play. That's just the way it works for me. And uh, after after all the kind of crazy stuff where I was getting the the basketball scores and all other stuff coming through the headphones from these guys, uh, two of my guitar techs, uh, Tim McCormick and, uh, and Mark, they would write a song on a piece of paper slip of paper and they put it on the piano where I was sitting next to Michael and I'd have 30 seconds to incorporate that song into the next solo. So whether it was uh, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony or Bobbles, Bangles and Beads or these are a few of my favorite things or, you know, a row, row, row your boat, whatever it was, the idea is you got, you got 30 seconds. And I really enjoyed that because to me that's part of your musical discipline uh, and it opened up all kinds of opportunities 
And that's where your vocabulary and your virtuosity comes to play because you need that to be able to do that. When you talk about the solo being its own composition, when you listen to Ricky, don't lose that number. Uh, your solo on that is like, you don't think of it when you're listening to the song, like this is like a separate song, but it, there's so much melodic stuff going on in that solo that takes it to, you know, places that the, you know, the verses weren't taking it, that it, that's really fantastic. And you sort of listen to that album and you listen to that song and you think that's a great solo and, and you don't really necessarily understand why, but if you sort of break it down, part of it is because it's just sort of bringing so much more into the song than was there before. Is that something that you sort of toiled over? Like, did it take a lot of takes to get to where it was? Were you writing stuff out or was it like the band playing and you coming up with that solo? Well, I built it for sure, because that, that particular solo was really a composition. In the beginning, there was a, I thought it would be, uh, again, an opening welcoming to look at the blues and, and also to, repeat phrasing in the beginning. So that would bring people in right away. They would immediately have settled into a comfort zone. The three opening um, riffs, if you would call it, are different notes, but the same phrasing. And then the second half uh, superimposes a substitute chord progression over the original chords of the of the song. So that takes it immediately away from sort of the blues. Then we would take a foray into something a little bit more outside. When you finish that and you know listen to the playback, did you think, wow, I really did something pretty special on that one? I'm not sure if that was exactly my words, but I certainly was happy with it. I think, yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to say. Are there any other solos are you know parts that you did on in that band that you look back on and think oh that's really you know one of my favorites even if people don't necessarily recognize it as such well i think some of the most fun that i had was with uh east st louis toodaloo mm. the duke ellington song because we were all big fans i was listening to duke ellington when i was a kid my dad in my dad's record collection it was sort of everybody walked into the room and said okay everybody pick a solo and pick an instrument that you're going to do that solo on. So I said, okay, I'm going to take the trombone solo and I'm going to play it on pedal steel just simply because I want to. I want to right. see how that works. That was a lot of fun because that was taking a, you know, a specific composition by somebody who I admired very much and translating it to an instrument that the original composer probably never even heard of it. And I don't think it was even invented at that time. Mm. So that was kind of fun. By the way, I, I think, I feel like Countdown to Ecstasy is sort of the sleeper in the Steely Dan catalog. I really love the vibe of that record. And it seems, it feels like it's sort of a looser, like not looser, like you guys aren't playing tight, but just looser in terms of the structures and you know, the freedom everyone has to sort of stretch out, um, you know, on songs like Boston Rag or Your Gold Teeth. What was the vibe on Countdown to Ecstasy? And we had some success by that time. And we knew that we weren't just beating our heads against the wall. And it was an opportunity to, I guess the best word I can think of is flourish, but to, to be able to 
um, indulge ourselves, I guess, in some way and open our horizons a little bit more for all of us. I think that album is not the best because it's there's the, the, that's a very problematic word, best. But there's something about that record. I think Razor Boy is probably the quintessential Steely Dan song. I love that I, song. I think that there's something about that that incorporates all of what Steely Dan could do, I think. That's you uh, on the that, pedal steel on that one, I assume. Uh, absolutely. Coming out with Showbiz Kids as your your big single after reeling in the years and do it again, as opposed to having, you know, my old school, your first single, it is a little bit of a challenge. Like, okay, we're going to throw this down now. Again, I, I think that those were still the days when the record business, when there was such a thing, was driven by record executives who were smart folks who had experience and had what we call ears and would uh, do their homework in terms of surveying what radio was interested in, what they were playing and what radio wanted to play. And that's pretty much how those records were chosen. Uh, it's the, the president of the record company just didn't say, wow, this is going to be our next single. It was a lot of, you know, single release. There was a lot of thought put into that. So those songs were released based on what at the time seemed to be a logical process. I thought Dallas was an incredible song. And it was interesting to hear other people who did it, Poco and other bands, right. do it. It's a very catchy hook. Yeah, but it seemed I, like Becker and Fagan were kind of dismissive of it later. But, I, you know, you go back and listen to it and you're like, oh, no, this is a solid song. Yeah. Well, I think they were afraid that that the band would be thought of as a country Western band. So it's OK. Were you disappointed when they decided to you know, basically break up the band and say, we're not, you know, we're just going to work with other people and not tour anymore? Well, it was, of course, it's a little disappointing. It was something that you put a lot of time and effort into and a lot of care. But on the other hand, I guess I, I don't mean to sound hard edged, but. By the time we got to the third album, I was probably doing three, four, five sessions a day uh, when I wasn't working with Steely Dan. So it's almost like it had become certainly something that I cared about, but there was so much else going on in parallel that I didn't really feel, I guess I didn't feel like things were slowing down. It just seemed like a natural progression. And I was still in Linda Ronstadt's band at the same time. Oh, wow. And touring with the Doobie Brothers. So it, again, maybe there was just so much going on. I wasn't really as aware as I might have been. I don't know. Did you think you become the, a full-time member of another band so quickly and, and one that's you know also so successful? No, none of that was planned. That just happened. I, di I didn't know where it was going. I felt that I was probably going to do a lot more producing and keep doing sessions because I really enjoyed the whole studio musician vibe. I think it, I thought it was, I enjoyed the discipline. I think it, for me in a world where many of my colleagues were, how shall we say overindulging in the fruits of their labor to me, there was a, it was a governor 
there was it which kept me from really going over the the total crazy edge that one could could in the in the in the in the rock and roll business when you were very successful uh the a producer doesn't care what band you're in how many gold records you have you show up at nine downbeats at nine fifteen, and you play it right or you're fired simple as that and to me that was maintaining that ability and that capability was more important than anything else Doobie Brothers album you were on was Stampede. I looked up the album music review of Stampede and it says, talk about greatness. The Doobie Brothers with Jeff Skunk Baxter added to their lineup, delivered their best album to date. So they're, they're definitely throwing it, throwing it your way. What was, what were those sessions like compared to the ones you'd become used to doing? I mean, obviously with Steely Dan and then you've been doing other session work as well, but was there anything distinctive about, you know, doing these Doobie Brothers sessions? It was like being in a band again. Uh, it was a, only a different, a different group of musicians uh, with a different outlook and a different style. And also the fact that the band was beginning to expand in turn, in musically. And hopefully I brought something to that that added another dimension to it. And they're all very talented musicians, uh, no problem adapting to anything, frankly. I mean, you listen to Living on the Fault Line. <laughs> That's an amazing record from from uh, a group of musicians who probably didn't know at the time or weren't aware of just how good they, they could be. So I think it was the beginning of the genesis of expanding a musical vision. Right. Yeah, well, you had... Um... You know, Tom Johnston, who was the lead singer and and played guitar as well, and he was having some health problems. So there was it seems like there was a lot of uncertainty around there where he was he was not as there and there was sort of more of a feeling of everyone kind of having to step up. And maybe that added to the kind of more group ensemble nature of the music. I think that makes sense. Again, showing the depth of talent that was in that band that maybe hadn't been as nurtured before. And you're the one who brought Michael McDonald in, right? I mean, basically, you're the two Steely Dan alumni. Yes, I brought Michael in kind of at the last minute to to fill in for Tommy, who was having some very severe health problems at the time. And sometimes you got to make a command decision, right? Well, it's so interesting because you look back on it, and it seems like one of the kind of great transitions in in rock, where you know the band was very you know successful. Uh, you know, artistically and commercially, you know, with Tom Johnson and then took on this sort of different identity and yet still had this life afterward. Did you anticipate how much stylistically the band would change with you know, the addition of Michael? I don't know if I had a complete vision of that, but bringing a keyboard player into an all guitar band, I knew that there would be some uh, fundamental changes. Uh, simply by virtue of the addition of that kind of instrument. And I, I didn't have a vision, but I was thinking that Michael as a singer who was just beginning to blossom as well 
And even though he was, I called him because I had a lot of confidence in his playing. I had given some thought to the fact that this could become permanent, that this might just work. And the, and after the, the, the rehearsals that we did in New Orleans, after we had to cancel the show and then came back and did the show afterwards, during those rehearsals, it was very obvious to me that this was going to work. Uh, Personality-wise, everybody was comfortable. They were comfortable with Michael's interpretation of some of the original tunes. And every once in a while, we would, you know, go off and sort of jam a little bit and play some other stuff. And and I think people began to realize just how talented Michael was. Seems like a song like Taking It to the Streets is, in a way, it's a bridge because it's still a rock song. You know, it still sounds like the Doobie Brothers, but you have Michael singing it and there's there's more of the keyboard in there. And then later, you know, on the album Minute by Minute, you know, something like What a Fool Believes is really just a full-on keyboard song and not a lot of room for you know you putting in your guitar and and that sort of thing but it's also an undeniable song did your enthusiasm for all of this sort of change as that that shift was happening not at all i said i said to me again i don't feel like i have to be in everybody's face i mean taking to the streets is a is basically a gospel song and certainly there's not a lot of guitar playing in any gospel music but there is and it's supportive i I suppose for me it's the question of what's more important uh you know me putting a sparkler behind my ear or being a part of a really good piece of music i remember one time gary katz who was the producer for steely dan and linda hoover had called me and said listen i just I'm at the end of this album with a, a young female singer. I needed to come in. I needed to bring everything you got. Cause in those days when you went kind of a session, your car company brought 20 guitars, five amps. You didn't know what they were going to ask for or what they needed. So bring all your stuff, come in. I needed to listen to this record top to bottom. So I listened to the record. And after I left the last sauce of Gary, doesn't need anything. It's just fine the way it is. And he said, that's why I pay you triple scale. Hmm. So to me, it's not, I'm comfortable. I, I don't, I don't have to, you know, jump on a trampoline or put a sparkler behind my ear in terms of any kind of music, whatever contribution I can make. Sometimes it's just being there. I produced a number of albums and on most of those records. I had Steve Cropper in the studio with a guitar. Whether he even played it or not, I didn't care. I just wanted Steve in the studio right? because there was something about his presence. The guitar playing was almost, you know, uh, tangential. I think people get the wrong impression because there certainly is a lot of ego in music. There has to be. Uh, Otherwise, you can't translate what you feel into something that other people can relate to. But I'm really about the song. (laughs) <laughs> about the music i don't care what was the reason after minute by minute that you decided to leave the doobie brothers i think as a change agent you need to realize when it's time to move on bringing michael into the band for a lot of people was traumatic there were people that were very angry you know this is not the doobie brothers that i know 
Uh, well, I'm sure people felt that way about Fleetwood Mac or, or other bands that had right. had a hard look and decided that they were going to see what else there was out there in terms, in terms of music. So you just need to know when it's time. And there were a lot of other things happening. I'm starting to get much more into, into record production. I get a lot of session work. And especially spending a lot of time in the world of electronics, uh, working for Roland and Fender and Gibson. And because um, I'd build guitars and repair guitars and customize guitars from, since I was very young and sort of um, honed my skills with Dan Armstrong and, and that crew, Bill Lawrence and those guys. So sometimes it's time. You just need to know. Have you thought about, you know, or been asked to do any of the sort of the reunion stuff with Doobie Brothers? I mean, I know you, you're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with them, and I'd love to hear how, how you felt about that happening. Um, but I, I wonder if you'd, you thought also it would be nice to be on the road with them again or whether that's just something not not interested in. Well, I was extremely honored to be nominated and to be inducted. I I don't have the attitude of, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm so cool. That's just whatever, you know. I'm not the anti-poet or the, you know, that sort of 60s reclusive underground, you know, revolutionary. And as far as going back and playing with the Doobie Brothers, to me, every life is like a series of chapters. And you open a chapter and you close the chapter. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> I'm having a really great time here uh, doing what I want to do. And I have a great day job, which I love. And so between the two, I don't even know if I could do that, frankly. And you did have Michael McDonald on your new uh, album as well. Yes, it, uh, actually. It was originally going to be an instrumental record when I was a kid. You know, Apache and all these songs were part of my repertoire and part of the joy of a guitar playing. And I was up in Santa Barbara doing a, cha- a charity event with Michael, a musical charity event. And uh, he asked me what I was doing. And I said, I, I'm uh, going to check out this solo thing. And he said, well, if you'd like me to do something on the record, I'd I'd love to. And I went, as I say, it took me one femtosecond to right. make that decision. And that led to when I ran into uh, Clint Black uh, up at, uh, at, a, at a function in S- Central California. Uh, I'd known Clint for many years, and he asked me the same question, and I told him what I was doing. He's, he said, well, you know, if you want some help on it, and I said, absolutely. This would be a lot of fun. Clint and Johnny Lang, the same thing. The only criteria was that you needed to write with myself and CJ, and you needed to try something that was way out of your wheelhouse. And you listen to Michael's performance, actually the whole composition of My Place in the Sun, that's very different than anything Michael's ever done. And Bad Move by Clint Black, (laughs) that's completely 180 degrees from anything that Clint's ever done. It just goes to show the depth of their musical 
abilities. So it was great having Michael on it and, and Clint and Johnny. Right. And, well, you're getting people to stretch while you're stretching. So that's, that makes it more of a sort of experience for everyone. Well, also I thought, okay, part of the fun of this is going to be seeing where it goes because for many artists, I would posit that for say for Clint in uh in the Nashville genre, it might be difficult for him to stretch because people had expected certain things from him, record companies, management, you know, there are certain expectations. And I thought, okay, well, these guys are my friends. I'm going to, I'm going to offer an opportunity for them to try something. If it doesn't work, there's, there's no consequence. We just shelve it and that's it. But if it works, this is doing, this is doing something for your friends. And I think it worked. Have you kept in touch with Donald Fagan at all? I haven't talked to Donald in a while. It's been quite a while. So as far as you, you don't know whether he's heard your versions of do it again and my old school on this album. I I don't, I should probably give him a call and rattle his cage a little bit. What do you think about him touring as Steely Dan without Walter Becker? I don't know. Makes kind of <laughs> makes sense, I guess, to me. Are there a number of bands that tour that only have one or two original members seems to do well. Um, I don't know. It makes sense to me, I guess. Uh, do you think Walter Becker was more talented as a bassist or a guitarist? It seems like he was playing bass when you guys were together, but then he's doing leads later in the, the catalog. I, I hesitate to make any kind of creative judgments on anybody. I think Walter was like we all were wanted to explore music through whatever uh, vehicle he felt comfortable with. So I don't, I don't, I, that, that would be a tough call. Was he a better bass player than a guitar player? I, I don't know. Uh, people, you know, was, was Buddy Holly a great guitar player? Would you hire him on a record session? No. Was he a great guitar player? Well, you'd have, it'd be tough to argue that he wasn't because he was very successful at what he did. Right. So whatever his guitar contribution was, if you took that away, it probably would have changed everything. So, yeah, any, anyone who uh, comes up with Peggy Sue is good with me. So, Yeah, I, I just think it's it, it, in a world where everyone is vying for position and status, and I'm better than you, and you're not as good as I am. I, I, I just try to stay away from that because I think the criterion that people use for that is flawed. So there's there's this new $150 audiophile version of Can't Buy a Thrill coming out, and all of the those Steely Dan albums are getting that treatment, including the three that you were on. Any interest in plunking down $150 to hear this souped-up version? I never really thought about it, because I'm sure I'm going to get a copy of it. So I'll probably wait. I'll probably wait. All right. Well, you'll have to, you'll have to let me know how it, how it sounds and if it sounds, you know, different or more like you were in the studio at that, at that point, by the way, I'd read that, uh, that, and I don't know whether this is true or not, uh, that you have, that you have not disclosed, uh, the origin of the nickname skunk. Can That's you correct. Nick- It'll be in my book. I was, I was going to say, can, you know, just between <clears throat> us, you want to say why, where that came from? Well, that's classified BBR <laughs> and I'm, I don't think you're cleared. 
joke. Okay. Um, but you, but your friends call you, your friends call you skunk at this point and not Jeff, I would assume. Most, yeah. Most people call me skunk and because of my day job, um, where most everybody I work with has a call sign. Uh, it's just perfect. President Bush, when I was working at the white house, called me skunkster. So <laughs> his, his dad's called me skunkster. Tell me about the day job. So you've been doing stuff for the Department of Defense for for a while now, and it's this whole other thing you have going on. How did you come into that, and uh, what are you doing right now? Well, let's see. I have to be somewhat careful. Um, I got into it because I wrote a a paper on how to convert a Navy fleet air defense system into a theater missile defense system with a with a an anti-missile capability uh, that's how it got started and it just led me down a pathway like all other pathways to where much of the work that i did uh the technical work with radars and missile defense and the associated technologies there were a, a number of folks in the military and in government who felt that maybe I had a pension and a talent for looking at solutions for problems that were somewhat unorthodox. Remember that musicians have an ability to analyze in a nonlinear fashion. So uh, I'm thinking on multiple levels at the same time. So they approach the problem very differently. I mean, basically a guitar solo is just an analytical piece of work. You know, if you break it down into how it would work on a logic tree uh, in the architecture of, of analysis. So more and more and more as I got into wargaming, as I got into looking at non-traditional applications of weapon systems and also got into strategy and tactics, for the most part, they sort of accepted me. I mean, in the beginning, it's always weird. What's this guy doing here? You know? But the real question is, can you walk the walk as well as talk the talk? And I guess after 25 years, it seemed to be everybody's pretty much happy with what I do. And what I do now is, I can talk a little bit about it, a, a lot of wargaming. As a red team member, as the adversary, uh, much of my expertise has to do with space, space warfare, uh, has to do with the technologies of things like high energy lasers, uh, future weaponry, and also the application of non-traditional tactics in a conflict. If we knew what you know, would we be more or less anxious? <laughs> oh, well, let's just say that the world is in flux. <laughs> I'm not. 100%. We all think that already, but yeah. Yeah. I am not convinced as to what the outcome will be. I think there was a time some years ago when the United States was a recognized and true superpower that had the ability to steer and influence the world. I think the United States is beginning to lose that advantage. 
And whenever you begin to alter a stable system, you then open the door for entropy. And the very definition of entropy is chaos. Right. So it certainly is of concern to me. Let's just put it that way. What thing would you most like to see happen now to stabilize the situation? Well, this sounds like I'm going back to the 60s, uh, world peace. I sound like a contestant in Miss America. I, 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 I want world peace. I would like to see some adult supervision. And I would like to see the parties involved look at survival and the future as a not as a zero sum game right and begin to see that there are and we've certainly seen some of it in the idea of you know understanding climate change what human beings might be able to do to alter the environment on the planet uh, i don't want to get into a, a discussion about environmental peace because i think that Whatever your position is, doing anything that would improve the environment is a good thing. Whether the argument is that it's man-made, whether it's not man-made, I don't think. I think I don't think that's relevant, frankly. I think what's pressing it is do something constructive, and then if folks around the world decided that the most important thing was basically what we all agreed to sign up to when we took an oath to defend the constitution of the united states the individual is the most important factor in all of that not the state so i think the revival of the importance and the relevance of the individual by everyone in the world would be a wonderful thing because it's individuals that write music it's individuals that paint beautiful paintings. It's individuals that write books. The, the freedom to do that is a necessary function. And if the world is run by the state where the individual is subsumed, all that goes away. When was the last time you bought a North Korean record? No, I know. Or, you know, or seen the North Korean movie. It's uh, you know, or yeah, you know, if there are some Iranian a North filmmakers, Korean pair of shoes, you know. Well, there are some Iranian filmmakers who are wonderful and now are now in prison. So, so and yeah. why are they in prison? It's because the state has decided that the individual's rights are subsumed. It's not the individual is not important. Well, I'm with you on the 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 importance of being able to keep uh, keep individual rights going um, yeah. and not have the state be you know getting involved in our personal lives. Um, all right, I'm gonna end this on a, on a music question, uh, and then I'll let you go. Uh, you got to run out of your house real fast, and you can only grab one record. It could be a single or an album. What do you grab? Gee, well, the good news is it's all on my computer, so I grab my computer. Ha. Huh. <laughs> I guess. Um, Where you're going just has a turntable. It could be a CD player, I guess, or an okay. MP3 player. I don't know. Grabbing an MP3 isn't that romantic, though. No, um, I'd be hard to say. 
Uh, it might be Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. Uh, it might be um, Dirty Old Bossa Nova by Howard Roberts. I mean, I'd have to, you know, I'd just scoop it up and stick it in my pocket. <laughs> you know, I asked this question early on uh, of Bruce Thomas, uh, who was Elvis Costello and the Attractions bassist, and Dave Gregory, who was guitarist for XTC. And they both are the first album both of them mentioned was Countdown to Ecstasy. Well, when you say a record, I thought you were talking about a particular cut. No, just like a record. Like it could, like could be an album, could be a single. Oh, okay. But I so thought it was interesting that I had, album, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, you could you could grab your, you know, Buddy Holly box set if you want. But I thought it was interesting that uh that like of the like the early, the people I asked this of early, two of them specifically said countdown to ecstasy. Oh, that's, uh, it's 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 a pleasure to hear that because as you mentioned before, there's something about that record that maybe still has there's something about that that mine that still has uh gold to harvest there's yeah. something about that that's that's that has that's unexplored i agree thank you so much uh skunk baxter i really appreciate it it was great talking to you i've really enjoyed your music for so long and it's just a pleasure to talk to you here well thank you for your hospitality that's it for episode 63 of carol pop Thanks again to Skunk Baxter for taking us through his landmark work with Steely Dan, the Doobie Brothers, and beyond. Look to his website, jeffskunkbaxter.com, for information about him, his music, and tour dates. Also, be sure to check out his Long in the Works debut album, Speed of Heat, which is available on the major streaming services and on vinyl and CD. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who does all the dirty work and will do it again next week. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M A R K C A R O. Also, visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. And if you're in the Chicago area, please come to our live Carol Pop conversation with David Pasquazi on January 18th at the Club Space in Evanston. Go to evansonspace.com or come to the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com. I'll have the information there too. Thanks.